Welcome to the Health Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, June 1st, 2020. Hey, it's June. Today's podcast is a great one. I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Zahn. Jeff is a very interesting and unique doctor. He's an anesthesiologist at Mount Sinai and specifically one of the OB anesthesiologists. So we've worked together for close to 15 years now. Jeff has a holistic approach to the practice of medicine and to life. He's the author of a book on happiness called Choose Happiness. And Jeff is also a teacher of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the big rage now, but what is it? In our podcast today, Jeff and I talk about mindfulness, happiness, medicine, and life. I am sure you will appreciate his approach and learn a lot. I know I did. If you want to learn more about Dr. Zahn, you can visit his website, www.practicalperspectivism.com. On Thursday, we'll have two podcasts with my colleague, Dr. Liz Schlansky. We'll be discussing her approach to medicine, and we'll also be discussing how we decide when someone in labor needs to switch to a cesarean delivery, which is an interesting and complex topic. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. We're here with Dr. Jeffrey Zahn, who's an assistant professor of anesthesiology, perioperative, and pain medicine. He's an OB anesthesiologist at Mount Sinai. He's an author of the book, Choose Happiness, and he also started a pilot program at Mount Sinai called Mindfulness Rounds. Jeff, welcome to Healthful Woman. Dr. Fox, and hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you so much for coming. You know, you do a lot of things, obviously, but tell our, you know, our listeners who you are, where are you from, what do you do, how'd you get into medicine? Good question. So I led a bit of a circuitous life. I went to college because my parents uh, said I couldn't know that I didn't want to go if I hadn't been there already. So I was pretty sure. So I went, I had a great year, and then I dropped out and got into restaurant work for several years. And when I finally decided to get out of restaurants about six years later. I was going to become a massage therapist. I've always had a hands-on healing touch sort of uh, lifestyle and believed even that cooking was sort of a hands-on healing touch lifestyle. And at that time, I then was exposed to medicine and uh, osteopathy, really, with manipulations and the suggestion to take on something a little more robust, a little more challenging, a little more time intensive, but maybe a little more rewarding. These were all made by these suggestions by my future mother-in-law, by the way, who was a hand <laughs> Happy therapist, here in, the, <laughs> hand therapist <laughs> here in the city. It was very early on in our, her, her daughter and my relationship, so she didn't know where that would go, but it worked out for, pretty well for all of us. So I went back, did my undergraduate work, and was actually going to be an orthopedist and a hand surgeon and provide her... Uh, we were going to work together as a hand therapist and hand surgeon. Found I didn't really love uh, surgery so much, and sur- certainly not the uh, orthopedics. And found my, but I did like the operating rooms, and found my way into uh, anesthesiology. And it's so interesting that you know you found your way into anesthesia, and you know as I said before, part of anesthesia is also this idea of pain management and pain medicine which is sort of where you started from, this idea of like the healing touch and healing hands and massage therapy and whatnot. Is that is that something you, you would have predicted or did, did that match up to immediately or just sort of happen that way? Well, I think it was certainly part of the draw as I started exploring it. You know, we started out in med school, not 
unless we've had exposure before, not really knowing much about anesthesiology as a profession. And I was uh, immediately taken by, in fact, the story that I tell that, that got me to anesthesia more than just liking the operating room atmosphere, which I do love, was when I was on my OBGYN rotation as a medical student. And we were waiting for, it was back in the days when patients were admitted the night before surgery. We were waiting for the patient to come in uh, for her oncology surgery the next day. And I was waiting with the anesthesia resident. The patient showed up and we went into the room to take the history. But of course, he is the resident and me as the medical student. He went first. And the atmosphere of calm and trust and that everything was going to be okay the next day, even though he wasn't going to be involved in her care, that this young guy created spoke so strongly to me and said, that I could do. That's who I am. And I've been an anesthesiologist since that day. Wow. And then what drew you to OB anesthesia in particular? Because you spend, you know, a lot of your time uh, on the labor floor doing anesthesia for women in labor, pregnant women. So that's sort of the extension there. And so a lot of people make fun of you don't go to anesthesia for the patient relationship. But that's exactly why I went into anesthesia, because we have very little time to have a relationship with the patient even in general anesthesia, because we see them, we get them ready, and we take them and put them to sleep, and we don't have that relationship, and we don't continue a relationship like you have, you'll deliver several several babies for a particular patient over the years. We don't have that. We've got to make our relationship powerful, strong, and quickly, and that's all we get. So the labor floor gives me a little more opportunity to do that. I'm, I'm entertaining family and significant other support personnel. It's much more of a social event. All Virtually all of our patients are awake as opposed to the general OS where most of the patients are asleep for most of the time or, or at least heavily sedated. So that was the, one of the major callings to me for obstetric anesthesia was that ability to, to create and sustain a relationship over a little, little bit of time with my patients. And it's also interesting, you know, obviously our listeners, uh, most of them don't know you. You're the kind of guy, you come onto the labor floor in the morning, you're carrying your bicycle with you typically, and you've got your, you know, your ponytail and you've got this big smile on your face. And when you walk in, people are not so sure that, you know, you're the anesthesiologist, you're a doctor, but you have that ability to sort of meld your real personality with medicine. And as you said, the patients, they're awake right? Whether obviously in labor or having a C-section and being able to sort of develop that relationship and that trust and that you're a real human and a person and, you know, you care about them is important in such a critical time in people's lives. And they're pretty scared often. Yeah. It's what we generally find in general general surgery and especially on the labor floor where patients are otherwise young and healthy and not really, nobody's coming to the hospital to have anesthesia. They're coming for their medical issue, and they understand their medical issue. You've got a, a hot appendix, you know, an infected appendix. You know that you have to have it cut out. You get that. But the anesthesia is something a bit of a mystery to everybody. So they're most scared of that mystery. And it's the real art and challenge that I love so much about doing what I do is disarming, creating a, a comfort level that this is not so so weird or mysterious, and yet maintaining uh, an air of authority as well. So it's a nice fine line to, to hyper walk everything. Right. And then this idea of incorporating sort of a more holistic approach, which I would say you're better at than others, this idea of, you know, wellness, and obviously we'll talk about mindfulness and happiness and sort of your approach 
is it always something you were able to do in medicine? Is it, you know, from the very start, is that something you really had to work on? I know because you're, maybe you're more naturally attuned to it, but obviously it's incorporated into medicine is not so easy. That's a great question. So I've lived my life this way since I was a teenager, understanding perspectivism, which is what I wrote my book about. Things can be good or bad, or it depends on how we look at it. And I've always chosen to choose happiness. I've always chosen to look at things in a way that engenders calmness, uh, happiness for myself. Medicine, and I've applied it day to day where I can in little bits throughout my career in medicine for the last 25 years. But in 2016, the ACGME, our accrediting organization for all residencies and fellowships, for all our trainees, they finally came around to realizing that we needed to take care of our trainees' wellness. And in order to do so, we actually need to look at our own well-being to be able to teach wellness and well-being. So it was a major shift in medicine overall that occurred just in the last few years that I just happened to be ready to jump on and take, take advantage of, if you will, eager to, to start participating in this regard in a more formal sense. When I was able to start going from giving obstetric anesthesia lectures to my trainees to giving wellness lectures, it was so much even more natural because while I've been doing OB anesthesia for 25 years, I've been living a wellness sort of lifestyle for 50 years. You're talking about sort of wellness for the physicians, for the medical students, for the residents. Uh, but what about for the patients? That has always been a part of my practice, if you will, to, to pr- try to bring that to bear, to tone down the uh, intensity and the mystery, that, as I was referring to before. So that has always applied in my care for patients. Teaching trainees to deal with the stress of the job was a whole nother, is, is a whole nother issue and a whole nother challenge. And this is where the mindfulness round study idea came in. We're hoping that we can show that in doing so, in training the caretakers to, in mindfulness education, in wellness education, to be more mindful both for their own selves and for their patients, we can have that show up in an improved quality of care for our patients. That's awesome. So let, let's jump into that. And I first want to talk about your book that you wrote, which is titled Choose Happiness, as you said. And it's basically, as you describe it, it's a treatise on practical perspectivism. Can you explain that? What does that mean? So I just got a communication from uh, actually one of our medical students who I'm working with on this project who trained, her undergraduate work was at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Psychology under the tutelage of Marty Seligman, who changed the whole field of psychology to look at positive psychology, and that's the name of of the field. He decided when he took over as president of the uh, American Psychology Association back in the mid-90s that we needed to start focusing on what are the habits and, and aspects of people who deal with problems well as opposed to just dealing with people who deal with problems ineffectively and founded the field of positive psychology. She just wrote uh, something about cognitive reframing as one of the positive psychology tools. And cognitive reframing is really what practical perspectivism is all about. But what does all of that or any of that mean? It means that how we look at anything determines how we feel about that thing. And we can look at any given event as terrible, horrible event or an event that we can learn from and that we may find a way to manage through and take advantage of instead of just being beaten down by it. So it's how we look at it. And the heart of practical perspectivism tells us that 
we have a choice. We have the power. Nobody can tell us how to look at something. We choose. We don't always realize that we're choosing, but we do so all the time in little ways and big ways. I feel that it's an empowering philosophy to know that I can choose how I want to look at this situation and then go on from there. And the, how I look at it will determine how I feel about it. Right. And I think that there's a there's a lot on this now. And, and the sort of quote you put in your book is that happiness is an internal choice more than it is an external condition. And I think that, you know, what you're talking about, and I know that, uh, you know, Talbin Shahar is a pretty, you know, well-known person who lectures on this and writes about this is it's not just an idea of, let's say, perspective, right? There is the idea of perspective, but in fact, your brain chemistry is changed based on how you choose to look at something. That it's not just this idea, oh, I'm going to make it seem better than it is. But if you look at it from the positive aspect and the possibility of something positive, it'll actually physiologically make you feel better. It's exactly so. And this is really fascinating and exciting work. 25 years ago, 20 years ago, we didn't know anything about something that we now are comfortable calling neuroplasticity. The ability of our brains, our adult brains, cognitively to change, to change their pathways, to lay down new pathways. And it really shouldn't be surprising. Anytime we learn anything new, any physical trait that we try to do, any task, we're slow to start and eventually it becomes easier and easier and it becomes sort of ingrained. Just We, we can do it by rote. From from just body and muscle memory, it's really our brains doing it. So we laying, we're laying down new pathways, new connections in our brains all the time. And what's come out of this work in neuroplasticity and, uh, and is supported by MRI data is that neurons that fire together wire together, which means that we can strengthen pathways by re- repeating those pathways, by repeating those thought processes. And we can weaken others out of disuse. So the more we focus on forcing and trying to encourage ourselves to find a different way to look at something that's bothering us so we can find another better way to move on, then we do that again and we do that again. And that becomes easier and that becomes our way of doing things. And our brain chemistry is changing. We are laying down stronger pathways in those, if you will, positive psychology formats where we can easily, more easily go to that in our mind, especially in stressful situations, doing it chronically in all situations, and not get stuck in the rumination, the obsession, the self-critiquing that we are otherwise would tend to do. Right. It's the same concept as like, you know, lifting weights. You know, you're going to make your muscles bigger and stronger so that if you need them in a certain situation later, they will be more able to handle that load. And if you avoid and don't exercise certain muscles, they will atrophy. So the brain isn't actually a muscle, but conceptually, you know, it has the same possibilities. Exactly so. Right. Perfectly said. And it's interesting that this idea of the word happiness, because that gets a lot of talk uh, of what exactly does it mean. And I think it's also important to to realize that when positive psychology talks about happiness and your book talks about happiness, it's not this idea of bliss, that you're just like walking around, you know, high all day, you know, that you just don't feel anything other than joy. It's really more an idea of sort of like perspective and satisfaction and feeling of accomplishment and sort of those types of feelings that we, you know, we use the term happiness because it's something everyone understands, but it's really much more deep than that. Yes, it's it's a very, very good. It's a very deep sense of contentment 
it comes out of acceptance. Uh, Buddhists look at this a lot with acceptance, but it comes out of this idea that things can always be otherwise. Am I okay where they are, even if I'm working to change them? And it comes from within ourselves. One of the points that I differ from a lot of other schools of psychology and there's even the field of positive psychology, they talk about getting all the conditions right. You need to have friends, you need to have family, you need to have fine meaning in your work. All those things are true. They do make it easier to be happy, to be content, to be satisfied with, with how your life is going. But they don't guarantee it. We need to look inside and find that within ourselves. There are many people who have everything and are still not content. They're not happy. That's because they've never turned inward to look at what it is that they feel they need to be happy. There's always a sense that there's something else out there that I don't have that I need to be happy. And, and none of that's true. It can be, we also know plenty of stories of people who have very little, and yet they are content. They're happy. They're satisfied with their life. They do good deeds. They find meaning. They have family. All those things make it easier to do so. Or, you know, we're scientists, you and I, and we do research. Is it cause or effect? Do we have those things because we found a way to be happy inside, which I think is really more the issue than gathering all those things and not having happiness inside? Right. I know. So my, my wife is a psychologist and she does, you know, for children in school psychology. And I know I'm paraphrasing here, but when she asks parents sort of like, what is it you're looking for, for your child? And frequently they'll say, I want my child to be happy. And she'll always say, well, like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, that's, that's, you know, that's not really our goal as parents for our kids to be walking around all day, you know, skipping and jumping and, you know, smiling because sometimes they have to go through struggles and they have to go through challenges and even disappointments in order to build those skills so that as adults or as you know older children or young adults or adults they can be more content in life so if we just basically give our kids everything they want you know in the name of making them happy so to speak i mean all of us know that won't help them be happy adults it may make them pretty miserable adults when they realize they can't get everything they want in the world very true or as you, you and i started raising children probably around the same time and one of the operative teachings in child psychology at the time for us was to give kids choice. Do you want the red plate or the blue plate to empower them, to help them learn how to choose and make decisions and give them a sense of involvement? As with anything, there's the law of unintended consequences arises. And so, you know, they get to 12 or 13 and they think they could choose everything. Um, so, but that's okay. They, they will learn that they sometimes don't have choices in the external world about everything. But that's where we can hopefully guide them to know that in the internal world, they can choose how they want to see it, how they want to feel about anything. We need to go through that. My question to, to both parents and to, and to adults is how often, do you, how many times do you need to suffer the same thing before we learn that lesson that we can choose a different way? We need to learn. We need to suffer. We need to, suffering is, is part of a human scale of life, but do we have to do so over and over again about the same things. And I would project that we don't, that we can learn, and neuroplasticity confirms this, MRI data confirms this, that we can learn to, to bypass a lot of that frequently. My, my wife was just reading a book, and the quote was, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. You're like an anesthesiologist for the soul. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to use that one. <laughs> so, so, so I want to shift into 
mindfulness. So this is a term that's pretty popular now, and a lot of people are talking about it or trying to practice it or just learning about it for the first time. So explain what exactly is mindfulness? How would you explain that to somebody else? So I think it's something that we all have a general sense of, and it's really that simple and it's not that complicated at a level. I'm going to use John Kabat-Zinn's definition of what mindfulness means and what it is, and that is to be present in a certain way, and that is on purpose, in the present moment, and without judgment. So we'll unpack all of that. But John Kabat-Zinn, I refer to him, he was a research molecular biologist in a world-class lab at MIT in the early 70s and left that and went to India and studied Eastern philosophies and came back and translated that into Western medicine. He was associated, affiliated with the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and he went to their departments of pain management and uh, psychiatry and orthopedics and took their very difficult to manage cases and said, went to the directors and said, send me these patients. I'm creating a program. It's an eight-week program. I'm going to teach people mindfulness practices. He set up this eight-week program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and pretty much all of modern mindfulness can be traced back to him creating this program. That's over 40 years ago now, and it's been massively studied. It led to the research in neuroplasticity. It's really a, a robust program, and there are many other offshoot programs very much like it. Eight weeks, once a week, two hours. There's a silent retreat during the course of it for five hours on, on a Saturday. And they've got positive results over and over again in so many different ways. What it means is we're, we're teaching practices. It's like going to the gym, as you said. So we teach to we teach basic meditation and awareness of breath. We teach mindfulness in movement, in body. We teach to, to tap into our sensory organs, our sight, our hearing, to be present with our world. We get caught up in things all the time, and we're not paying attention to what's going on. You can take a I, I, I do it myself. I take a walk down the street. I'm three blocks past where I wanted to go and realize that I missed where I was going because I was caught up in thoughts in my head. That's not being present. That's not being mindful. Mindfulness is being aware of your steps, being aware of where you're going, moving through the world as much of the time as we can. And we do this on purpose. Now, how do we get better at it? practice, just like we get better at anything. We practice. You know, athletes and, and uh, Broadway performers, musicians, they spend very of their, little of their time actually on stage or on the field per performing. They spend most of their time practicing. If we want to be more mindful in our daily life, we have to spend more time practicing it. And the practices of meditation, awareness of breath, mindful movement, like yoga, things like that, that helps us call those uh, practices to bear in real life in moment to moment. Right. So I was going to ask, there's obviously a lot of overlap between mindfulness and disciplines like meditation or yoga or certain forms of therapy, you know, because you hear a lot of the same themes involved. But is mindfulness sort of like an overarching for all of those or is it sort of a, a parallel to those? What's the relationship between all of those? I would definitely categorize it as the overarching. All of those things, when we practice them, we are practicing mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, in doing yoga, we're practicing mindfulness. When my wife paints her art, she's practicing mindfulness. She's completely present there, so much so that she almost tunes out the rest of the things going on her because she's so 
one with the moment of creation. Mindfulness is definitely the overarching catch basin for it all. And then what would be something like when you talk about practicing? So, so tell me practically, how would that work? You know, what types of things do people work on and practice uh, as a part of mindfulness training? So some of the very uh, simple and basic ones and take virtually no time at all to talk about the stop practice. And stop is a word that we all know. It's where you're moving and you, you stop. Well, quite literally, that's the, the S of stop is to just stop. So the acronym stands for stop and then take a breath. So we're going, going, going. We're, we're doing all the time, but we're really human beings. We never stop to just be. So stop, take a breath, observe where you are, what's going on around you, Take a, observe how you're feeling about things, and then proceed. Just a minute like that over and over again throughout the day will build that mindfulness muscle, will build that practice. So it can be as simple as that. There are many others. We have one we call two feet, one breath, which is really just a, a slightly bit more of an extended and guided version of the stop practice. You know, stop, take a breath, observe, and proceed. Two feet, one breath is, again, it's a pause. You stop. You feel your feet on the ground. Sense where you are in space in the world, what it is you're about to be doing. Take a breath. Center your body. Center your mind. Calm everything down. Let your shoulders relax for a bit, and then move on. Two feet, one breath. These are simple practices that we're talking about. Right, and these are things that a lot of people sort of intuitively understand that they would do before, let's say, uh, speaking publicly or before maybe going up to bat in a baseball game or before, you know, performing, you know, in front of people on your violin. So, like, people understand that for, like, big moments, it's helpful to do that. But what you're suggesting is that to get better at that, people should do it, sort of practice that all the time, even in smaller moments in life. Right, right. So if we go back to the, uh, to the cabin thin definition, on purpose in the present moment, right? It's the on purpose. We do this whenever we remember to think about it. And if we try to remember to think about it more often, we'll do it more often. And then we'll be doing it all the time without thinking about it. And if it works going into big moments, it's going to work going into little moments of every moment of our day. Maybe we could circumvent some of the problems we create for ourselves and for others around us by not being present in the moment. You know, I, I said at my computer, my wife is talking to me. I'm not really listening to her. If I stopped, took a breath, paused what I was doing and listened to her, we, I would hear what she was saying. I'd remember it. I wouldn't have to go back and ask or, or, for, or and not have heard it at all and go do exactly what she asked me not to do. We, create, we, we end up creating problems by not being for ourselves and others around us, by not being mindful. The more mindful we can be, the more present and full our lives are. And I'll add to this that we often think that we don't have the time for these things. Well, circumventing problems in our life actually is a time saver. So the time we spend practicing is actually repaid plentyfold in the ease of our lives. And so w what else might be like a tangible benefit that someone, you know, that either research has shown or that you have in your own experience or others have said? So you mentioned the idea of maybe having fewer of these problems that require time to unsort or maybe sort of in a interaction with a person where, you know, you're not really present and it you know, escalates. What other kind of benefits are there either for overall health or for psychology or practical? 
Sure. So the, the medical benefits are, are very well researched and are robust. We tend to have uh, lower blood pressure um, when we can reduce our stress. So when we live at a high stress level, we live at a high sympathetic nervous system level, that fight or flight level of existence. And that causes our blood pressure to go up, our heart rate to go up, and results over years and years of living that way results in more heart disease and hypertension, more medications that we're taking, and secondary complications from those medications. So the data, the research data over the last 40 years on blood pressure management and control is very positive by people who are trained in mindfulness practices. This is where sort of habit then started with his MBSR program, right? One of the other things about the stress response is we live at high cortisol levels. It's a normal, naturally occurring hormone in our systems that we release during stress to allow blood sugar to go up so we have energy to fight or run away from the tiger, right? But living at those high levels causes more diabetes. So reducing our cortisol, cortisol levels routinely lowers the risk of diabetes. It all, cortisol also suppresses our immune system. So we are more likely to be sick more often to not recover from our illnesses as quickly, the more stress level, higher stress levels that we live at. And that could result in days lost working, result in lower income, all things related to our practical lifestyle. Wow. And so how would someone, you know, let's say someone's listening to like, I'm sold, I'm going to be mindful, I'm going to practice this. How would they go about? Do they have to, is it a book? Is it a website? Do they have to like see a professional? Like, What is it that they would need to do to start really incorporating this into their life in a meaningful way other than just a, a, a few small tricks? So great. Again, a great question. Mindfulness, as you alluded to earlier, is a buzzword these days and it's really all over. One just needs to do a simple internet search for mindfulness and you'll come up with a pile of things. And so I would say to start reading and find your own direction in the field for what feels comfortable, whether it's meditation practices, whether it's yoga practices, whether it's a course, taking a course like MBSR, which is offered far and wide. It's, it's international now and are, is easily found and classes are regularly starting. It's an eight-week investment in time. Mindfulness apps, meditation apps, try different forms of meditation. People say, I can't meditate. Pretty much anybody, most meditations are guided meditations. The idea in meditation isn't necessarily to relax or to stop thinking. It's to learn how to notice when you're distracted. That's the whole point. Learning to notice that my mind is wandering and bring my mind, my mind back to the present moment. And again, the more we do it, the easier it gets. So I would suggest finding different apps that have different meditations and listening to it, not even necessarily trying to meditate, just listen to them and see what comes out of that. And one will find one's direction most organically that way. And I think that's a really important part of it is to have it be an organic experience for the individual. So it's a little hard. I, I could say do this and things will work out. And that's most likely to take an MBSR course, a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. <laughs> you learn a lot of the tools and then you can find your direction from there. But if you don't want to make that big of an investment right off the bat, go online, start searching, start investigating. Right. And I think it's more almost like choosing happiness. Someone just has to make a choice that they're going to get into this. And like you said, there's a million ways to, to sort of enter the world of mindfulness. And as long as someone says, I'm going to do this, you know, you'll find your way. 
Exactly so. And, and it's a beautiful phrasing, too. There are a million ways. I, I, I write in my book, there's an infinite number of doorways to this present moment. And, and using numerous, using many at different times, having the most tools in your toolkit will serve each individual best. So finding the right set of tools that work for each individual and pursuing it and always being open to new tools. When this whole COVID thing started, look, I, I consider myself as good as anybody about being mindful and being present. I've been living 50 of my 60 years this way. But it was a, this is a stressful time for humanity, for each of us as individuals. And I was just so grateful that I've that I already have a well-stocked toolbox to reach into to at different moments and different times to find ways to deal with the present moment. Uh, so the more tools we can gather that work for us, the better. It's a great way to look at it. So tell me about this initiative of the mindfulness rounds. As, as, so I finally, I wrote my book, and in the writing and research of my book, I found out about mindfulness-based stress reduction. I didn't really know anything about it before I wrote my book. And then within a matter of months, uh, our, our graduate medical education office who runs all our residencies and training programs at Mount Sinai started offering this course for faculty. And I was in the first cohort of people that took that course. And I met Mickey Brown, who was one of our nurse managers in the World Trade Center Health Department. And she is a qualified MDSR teacher and has been so for many years. She was leading this course. And it was it was phenomenal. I mean, I, I still believe in practical perspectivism. And I think they go hand in hand with each other practical perspectivism relies on being mindful. So we took the ideas in MBSR and, and I did some research about what we know, where it works, like I was talking about uh, blood pressure and diabetes and uh, immunity and immune function. And we know that many studies have been done. We know that we can make a difference for healthcare professionals. Why it matters is because over the recent decades, there's been a spike in healthcare practitioner, burnout, suicide, and we're losing good quality people to the stress of the industry. So this field has been applied somewhat strenuously to this group of people. And we know pretty well that with a variety of approaches, we can make a difference in burnout, in stress level, in day-to-day function and health for healthcare practitioners. But what hasn't been shown in in all sort of uh, review studies bring up the idea that we haven't shown a link between improving the quality of life for the healthcare practitioners if it has any impact on the quality of care that they deliver. And it's a difficult idea to research because having hard data metrics, having ways to measure the relationship between how the practitioners are feeling and the quality of care that the patients are receiving is it's challenging, but we believe we came up with one, and we came up with a shortened program of mindfulness-based stress reduction, riffing off of that, an eight-week program where we bring it directly to the floor, to the floor, to the healthcare practitioners themselves, rather than trying to get them adding it to their workload, bringing it in the course of their day, and that, I think, was one of the salient differences, and then we are going to evaluate their stress levels over the course of the program, do they get better? And then we found some markers that we could evaluate patient satisfaction and quality of care to see if we can correlate improved healthcare practitioner stress levels with improved quality of care. Right. And I think there's a there's a 
several important things that you said there, which are so interesting. And the first is this idea that we kind of already know that these practices and these you know disciplines are helpful for people in a stressful environment, you know, doctors, nurses, other healthcare providers, and that, you know, we sort of expect people to to appreciate this and find benefit from it from the healthcare workers themselves. I guess it's sort of intuitive that things would be better for patients if their providers are in a better place. You would think that's the case. I don't think it's a huge leap, but like you said, how would you prove that? Like very, very difficult. And so instead of just saying, well, we think it'll work for patients, you know, to really come up with some metric to show whether it has an effect on on patient care, which is amazing and really commendable. And the other thing which is so important that you said is, you know, so many of these programs require the provider to sort of sign up and go somewhere or do something in addition to what they normally do, which number one, makes it hard to get people to sign up. And number two, it could be that you're just selecting people who are more ready for this, so to speak. And maybe these are the people, more the personality of the person who chooses to do this more so than that they did it. But here, since you're bringing it, as you said, to the floors, which is why it's called rounds, like what we do on the floors anyways, it's sort of being brought into the unit to see what it does overall in the unit, which is an amazing thing, number one, to make it more accessible for everyone, but number two, to make it more applicable that to really see if it works or not. One of the problems with many of the studies in the field is that there is this notion of a self-selected group of people who will pursue this sort of education and this sort of practice. And that's true to a degree. We also have a lot of data on people who are very skeptical and who have been sort of forced into it by their families or, or medical providers this sort of therapy, if you will, and it still has positive effects. So, so we convert a lot of previously unconverted. Mm-hmm. But the goal was, in fact, to change the culture of the whole floor, to allow the patients and their visitors to attend the sessions, to have it be a gestalt going on on the unit overall, where everybody was participating in little ways and, and bigger ways, whether they were hard practice, hard and fast practitioners and true believers, or, you know, doubt, serious doubting Thomases, they'd all start to see it happening in each other. And that's one of the amazing things also is people who have taught now several MBSR courses myself, and we see people who are doubtful, and they sort of diligently, reluctantly do the practices, and they start seeing it show up in their lives, and they, they come back and tell us, wow, it, I started doing, you know, two feet, one breath on my own. What a difference it made. To change the whole culture of the floor, we felt was really a, a bit of a novel approach. Right. And I know that currently, because this started like literally the exact same time that all the, you know, social distancing and quarantines, everything happened. So currently it's being done, you know, over Zoom in terms of its intention. So how practically, how often is it done or would it be done in the hospital? Sort of in what setting, how often, who's invited, how long does it take? Those sort of details. Again, let's just take Corona out of the equation for now. So we were about to launch the study by our uh, institutional research board, uh, the review board. And we were about to launch on the the week that, that COVID hit Manhattan. And so we didn't get to launch it because we weren't ready to make the transition to Zoom and people really were just, just a little overwhelmed with too many other things going on. And part of the success of this program, we really believe, is doing it in person. An MBSR type class can be done over Zoom and it can be effective, but it's 
part of the essence of the course is the group interaction, is the interaction between participants as the course is happening. Do a lot of dyad work, two people talking to each other and then coming back to the whole group and reporting. And that's much more challenging on Zoom. Secondly, getting people in the midst of their daily work day to stop and go online for a course was likewise challenging as, as we we're now doing mindfulness rounds in a yeah, slightly scaled back version than the study version we had for our labor floor and the OBGYN and anesthesia department. So we're seeing that it's, it's much more challenging to get people to do so in the middle of their shift rather than arriving on the floor and first being there with them and doing it. So the idea was to, to see how this would play out and, and we hope to get to it as a, as a real study sometime perhaps later this year. And then be able to take it to hospital administration and say, hey, this worked. We see this works. Let's make a program where we can go around to multiple units and, and repeat it. So what we don't know is, is eight weeks too short? Is eight weeks too long? We'll determine that from our trial. And then the next question would be, how frequently would it need to be repeated? So do we need to come back for a refresher week or refresher day? once a month, once every three months. Those are still questions to be answered. Excellent. And so again, this would be on the floors. It's about what, 15 minutes or a half hour? Yeah. How much time? Yep. Quick sessions so people can, and, and again, quick sessions so people can catch any bit of it. And there's a practice, there's a little theory, there's a little inquiry, and then it's done. So we're not taking too much time out of people's days. And the idea would be doing it three days a week for both the day shift and the night shift to catch a lot of people with right. a little bit so that it builds, again, organically from the ground up. I think one of the other uh, added benefits to this is just getting all of the different people to, like you said, in person, to stand together, to look at each other, to talk to each other about something that's not specifically medical is so valuable in terms of team building and you know diversity and understanding one another and communication and all of those things, it just compounds the potential benefits beyond just the the discipline of mindfulness. We learn. I learn from, I try to learn something from from everything going on around me. The, we have a volunteer service at Mount Sinai called the uh, Tea Cards, and they come around with tea and serve tea and essential oils to a, to a unit. And everybody, everybody tries to come. Everybody congregates because it's a an allowed excuse to take a short, quick break on the floor in the middle of your workday. And that's just what we tried to uh, enlist leadership before we ever came to the actual practitioners on the floor so that they would be behind, so that they'd be encouraging their staff, yeah, take those 5, 10, 15 minutes, go. It's good for everybody. So to get that involvement at that level. Right. It's it's so hard also because now with all this corona restrictions, infections, masks, and you know s- distancing, which is you know understandable from an infection standpoint, it's so difficult from a team building standpoint. I mean, obviously, when people go through a traumatic event together, that could be team building. But just on those small interpersonal reactions to not see someone's facial expressions, to not be able to stand next to somebody, to not be able to maybe you know put your hand on their shoulder or whatever it is, this is really hard. And these types of interactions are so important. And now that they're going to be lacking for whatever amount of time, 
all the more so the work's going to become more stressful for people. And therefore more important that these sorts of programs uh, are in place and get activated. You know me very well. I'm a big hugger. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a strong believer in the healing touch. I came to, me- I came to healthcare from a, from a background of cooking and massage therapy, so it makes sense. And not being able to share that, you know, arm around the shoulders, you say, with, with my colleagues to just relieve a little bit of tension has been very, very challenging to all of us. Yeah, that's hard. Well, listen, Jeff, I, I love what you're doing. I've always loved what you're doing, but I think that this program is so important and so valuable and we're going to learn a lot and it's also going to help a lot of people. And I thank you for you know doing this. I think it's going to make you know certainly our unit a much better place for both the you know providers and for the patients and obviously as you as we've been talking about this stuff you know this mindfulness and all of these are they're so needed and all the more so now maybe more so than ever agree completely thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it your fabulous questions you really just pulled it all out thank you for getting me into yoga several years ago i <laughs> should know that i should you know exercise one way or another but maybe you got me you got one day on our labor floor you got me into yoga and i've been practicing it ever since for the last three years now it's wonderful so thank you for that and again thanks for this opportunity thank you for listening to the healthful woman podcast to learn more about our podcast please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com that's h e a l t h f u l w o m a n.com if you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address please feel free to email us at hw@healthfulwoman.com have a great day the information discussed in healthful woman is intended for educational uses only it does not replace medical care from your physician Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.